0: Hey Jay, when did Psylocke get her original body back?
1: I think that was when Logan was dead, Miles. How? I thought Quanan was dead at the time. Oh, oh, she is. Um, so this time, Betsy's body—meaning Quanan's former body—exactly. Anyway, that body, which Betsy was occupying, got destroyed by a vampire. Ouch! Right. Anyway, the vampire absorbed Betsy's consciousness, which was able to fight back and kind of reverse Vampire the Vampire with the help of a little bit of Logan's soul.
0: How did Logan's soul get there? Ah, uh, yeah, the vampire had absorbed it a while
1: back. It was just a little piece. So, what?
0: Betsy took over the vampire's body? Pff,
1: no. Then how- She rebuilt her old one from scratch. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm
0: Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 283 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: So, Jay, people who have been following the comics news might have seen some pretty sweet news, but for anyone who's missed it, do you want to talk about it?
1: I mean, ethically, I probably should, um given the the uh (laughs) the coverage of this podcast yeah so i'm i'm writing a cyclops one shot it's a comic um it is part of the marvel um snapshots line which is cool and amazing and curated by music and in a lot of ways kind of a spiritual successor to the marvels comics um my issue comes out in april it is drawn by tom riley who is absolutely phenomenal and i'm God, I'm really excited. It's 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 been a lot of fun to work on. It's it's also been kind of terrifying, very terrifying.
0: I'm really excited too. You're a really good writer, and you know Cyclops maybe better than anybody, and you're writing a Cyclops book, and this is freaking amazing.
1: I mean, that's kind of the hard part because it feels like the stakes are really high. Yeah, so you know, just
0: uh, don't fuck it up. Hmm. Uh-huh you're gonna do great i'm so excited and jay everything you've shared with me about this project makes it sound like it's gonna be incredible
1: anyway we'll drop a link to the announcement which also has the title and hopefully the ordering information in um the visual companion to this episode and now back to x-men who require current explanation and welcome to us being a little bit closer to age of apocalypse but not quite there yet It really does feel like the new Inferno. I mean, we've been building up for so long, and less so Legion Quest, but definitely Age of Apocalypse is going to continue to have rippling repercussions really through the present.
0: Yeah, and I mean, part of that, I think, is just what a massive paradigm shift it was. And part of it is just that it was full of cool ideas. And if you have a universe full of cool ideas, of course you're going to bring them into the present day, even after that universe sort of kind of vaguely stops being a thing.
1: It was big, it was sprawling, and it was incredibly detailed and well-realized. A lot of the alternate timelines we've seen as events or as tangential to events are kind of flashes in the pan. They're they're brief one-off things that don't really have the infrastructure to support as much ongoing narrative as, say, Age of Apocalypse does. I mean, I think Age of X is a good example of one that kind of lampshades that entire concept. And does it very well, and and also of one of the more evocative, sort of, reality-breaking X-Men events there have been. But again, you don't really see the kind of ripples from that that you do from Age of Apocalypse.
0: But we're getting ahead of ourselves, because right now we're still very much in the build-up. Not just to Age of Apocalypse, but the build-up to Legion Quest, which itself was the build-up to Age of Apocalypse. Right now we're going to talk about some X-Factor.
1: So, we're building up to Legion Quest, which is building up to Age of Apocalypse. What's built up to the point where we are now?
0: So here's the thing, we would do it previously on X-Factor, but much like Excalibur was up until Warren Ellis came on the book, X-Factor is a book sort of struggling to find its identity right now, and part of that is that it seems to exist in the service of other plot lines. So that being the case, previously on some other comics.
1: So Mystique and Destiny, in addition to the core of first the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and then Freedom Force, were a wonderful, if thoroughly criminal, couple.
0: Freedom Force, of course, was the U.S. government's first government-sponsored mutant team run by Dr. Valerie Cooper.
1: Things were going generally fairly well for them until Legion, that's the son of Charles Xavier and Israeli Ambassador Gabriel Haller, killed Destiny while under the influence of the evil Shadow King. Well, while maybe under the influence of the evil Shadow King. What was going on with Legion remains somewhat in question we know that destiny foresaw her death as her name implies she's precognitive and we know that the shadow king had gotten into the heads of a lot of people on muir island at that point but we don't exactly know whether he was controlling david or whether this was one of david's many personalities
0: so, if Mystique is good at one thing, it's being in love with Destiny. If she's good at two things, it's being in love with Destiny and shapeshifting. And if she's good at three things, it's being in love with Destiny, shapeshifting, and holding a grudge. If she's bad at anything, it's parenthood. Mm, yeah, very much that. So, after all of that, Mystique pretended to be mentally ill to gain access to her caretaker Forge's files ran away, revealed to Rogue, Nightcrawler, and Graydon Creed that she was all of their moms—I mean, okay, Rogue already knew, but still—and fell off a waterfall, and nobody saw a body, so, uh, yeah, she's—I mean, let's be real, she's totally still around.
1: It's worth pointing out that she has pulled not only similar moves, but exactly this specific move before. A lot of waterfall-related almost death with Mystique. You'd think they would learn from that, but no, at this point at least Nightcrawler and Rogue are thoroughly convinced that she's dead.
0: Yeah, more fools, they.
1: So, that Legion guy we mentioned, the one who killed Destiny, what's his deal? Okay, so David Holler led a relatively normal early childhood, at least until his father figure, his, um, I I think his, his mother's partner at the time, died next to him in a terrorist attack.
0: David's biological father, of course, is Charles Xavier.
1: Who has been largely absent from David's life. Now... At that point, David's mutant power manifested. They killed the terrorists and absorbed one of them into David's mind and also developed him a trio of new personalities which had their own individual mutant powers. And in theory, and at least in the comics, what's said at this point is that this caused David to become autistic. This is bad brain science and also bad social description, so we glossed that.
0: As someone who proudly holds a very dusty 16-year-old bachelor's in psychology, yeah, um, that's really not the way brains work at all. But, you know, it was Marvel in the 80s, so there you go.
1: And, and also, there is a long and iffy history of depictions of mental illness in superhero comics. If you haven't, I would recommend going back and listening to the episode where we discussed Legion with Cy Spurrier, who, who wrote the character's most recent solo series, um, where we talk, among other things, a lot about the depiction and codification of mental illness surrounding him.
0: After the part we just mentioned where Legion killed Destiny, the whole Shadow King thing came to a head and David was left comatose, which is still his current state.
1: This was pretty much the end of Freedom Force, along with a couple other deaths and some general arguments. And after the entire team had effectively self destructed, Dr. Valerie Cooper, their government liaison, recruited X Factor as their successors, figuring that maybe she should try recruiting a team of, of mutant superheroes rather than supervillains if she wanted someone to work for the government.
0: Hindsight is 2020.
1: Shortly thereafter, Um, Due to a long series of weird incidents and lack of communication, Forge took over as X-Factor's government liaison.
0: So that's two X-Factor government liaisons with histories with Mystique, and a probably alive Mystique with unfinished business with Legion. And we will take it from there into X-Factor number 108, Promised Vengeance plotted by John Francis Moore, scripted by Todd DeZago, penciled by Jan Dursima, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And John Francis Moore, we've seen a whole lot of him lately. I think we first talked about one of his books with the X-Men Phoenix miniseries.
1: Didn't he also write Wolverine Killing? Oh, I
0: think maybe that was him too. Yeah, that was, that was pretty good. That was tremendously good. He's going to be the regular X-Factor writer post-Age of Apocalypse.
1: Now, for the most part, at least in the large X-books, what we've seen is, is roughly the breakdown we've got here, which is more on plots and DeZago scripting.
0: Yeah, and DeZago's script, I don't know, I'm not so big on the plotting in these issues. Like, they feel a little bit fillery, even for something that's clearly leading up to something big. But the script is really fun, especially DeZago's version of Strong Guy is delightful.
1: Yeah, he's got a lot of the same self-referentiality and humor as Peter David's strong guy did, but I find Dezago, I like Dezago's much more in general.
0: Also talking about creators who are going to be a big deal with the X-Men going forward, Steve Epting does the cover, which is this beautiful piece of a very solemn, ice-cold-looking Mystique with her arms crossed over her chest holding a gun, and this background of skulls of various sizes to the side. Like, I would have a poster of that. It would be a scary poster, so I probably wouldn't put it in, like, my bedroom or something, but I would totally have a poster of that.
1: Oh man, can you imagine, like, having Mystique up a Mystique poster watch you sleep?
0: Oh man, and then you wake up from a nightmare and you look over and it's like Sunfire or something instead, and you're like, wait a minute.
1: No, it's just her and she's just like judging you.
0: Mystique does judge. If there are four things Mystique is good at. What about international espionage, man? Five things, five things that, anyway. Mystique is highly skilled. So, in the actual comic, we start with Forge, Nightcrawler, and Rogue watching Rogue's very painful memory using one of those machines that I love in comics where, like, they can project the memories or thoughts of a person onto a screen in front of everybody else. It basically turns the plot of a comic into a comic. They're such a cheap device. Well, yeah, that's why everybody can afford to use them in all those scenes. They cost, like, two bucks.
1: I don't know, man. I... I would believe it if if they said, you know, the X-Men had the equivalent of body cams or something. I would be fine with that. That would make sense. Or like onboard recorders on all of their vehicles. This is a little silly.
0: I mean, it's Forge. If there's a machine that you can describe as a little silly, he probably made it.
1: Oh, that is a really excellent point, actually. I am much more okay with it, given that Forge is the guy operating it and presumably who built it. I'm a little less happy with the idea that these are readily available to anyone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that could be real awkward. So the awkward scene we're seeing right now is, in fact, the ending to X-Men Unlimited number 4, the one where, after revealing that she was everybody's mom, Mystique seemingly died.
1: And apparently in Comics Time, it's only been a few months since that.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I've tried to think about how Comics Time lines up, and the fact is it just doesn't, so I don't worry about it too much these days.
1: Repeat to yourself, it's just a show, I should really just relax. Forge's
0: take is that Mystique may be alive. I think his evidence probably largely includes, it's a comic book and we didn't see a body, and honestly, even if we did, she'd probably still be alive.
1: Plus, again, she's done exactly this before, I cannot emphasize that enough.
0: I also do appreciate that... A lot of previous continuity is being pulled in here. Like, I may not overall be big on the plots of the individual issues, but the fact is John Francis Moore and whoever else was working with him on the plot aspect is bringing in a ton of relevant stuff. So the fact that Mystique, after Destiny died, was acting mentally unstable and Forge took her in and trained her to be more on top of her powers and tried to help her figure out what her identity was— Like, he brings in the fact now that he's pretty sure that was just her setting the world up for her seeming like she might do something irrational and uh, off the cuff, like, you know, falling down a waterfall to save people you wouldn't think she would save. Like, I enjoy that Forge is playing continuity detective as much as we are.
1: And I one hundred percent buy that in terms of mystique, and especially in terms of mystique and destiny. Um, this is this is one of those things that's gonna take me back to the whichever of the death of Wolverine series that it was that she was the center of. Was it the Wolverines? Uh, yeah, yeah, Wolverines.
0: That was a phenomenal series. And actually, we'll get to this over the course of the episode. But her behavior in that and the way she handles her goals in this arc line up really well. I think.
1: Yeah, that I, I found myself thinking of that a lot while I was going back through these issues. Because again, this is, this is a mystique who commits crimes of passion with incredible logical forethought and planning.
0: That's a really good way of putting it honestly, and I think that sums up a lot of her character in general right there.
1: Yeah, agreed.
0: So after Forge offends the hell out of everybody by being Forge and Rogan and Nightcrawler stomp off... They're quickly replaced by Val Cooper and Nick Fury. And, you know, Val shows up to consult with Forge, but Nick Fury just barges in in all of his skin tight spy suit cigar chomping glory. And I'm reminded of nothing so much as like a Staranko drawn Kramer from Seinfeld. Like, I I can only imagine the studio audience of this comic just starts applauding every time Fury does this.
1: Oh, yeah. And there's a bit of narration that really goes well with that, too. He is Colonel Nick Fury. Executive Director of S.H.I.E.L.D., Strategic Hazard Intervention, Espionage, and Logistics Directorate, the worldwide international peacekeeping agency. Hero of many wars, expertly trained in the use of every weapon known to man. Today, he is here to operate that most powerful of devices. The television remote.
0: That thing you mentioned about Tizago scripting being a little bit like Peter David's, but perhaps slightly less pop culture and slightly more palatable? Yeah. Yeah. And that television remote is used to show some security footage from the Israeli embassy, specifically of this elderly secretary lady named Mavis Fine, who I kind of love because she has this wonderful, like, mid-2000s male hipster haircut. Uh, it's it's great. Um, some haircuts, I guess, just transcend all boundaries of era, gender expression, etc. Like, like rock, rock and, and roll. roll! I don't know if that haircut's very rock and roll. It's more shoegaze. Anyway, point being—
1: The rest of you can watch Wild Zero later.
0: Point being, while Mavis Fine and her haircut are typing at a terminal, Mavis Fine and her haircut are also in the break room talking to somebody else. So, womp womp, shapeshifter, probably mystique, specifically probably mystique, because what Mavis Fine number one was doing was uh, looking up some information to get former Brotherhood of Evil mutants-er and Freedom Force-er avalanche uh, back into the good graces of the law.
1: Look, there are plenty of other explanations for being in two places at one time. Time travel. Clones. Time-traveling clones. It's true. Have we learned nothing from Executioner's Song?
0: I learned a lot from Executioner's Song. Like about how to treat your parents. Or maybe how not to treat your parents. Mainly about baby food. Anyway. Anyway... So Havoc and Strong Guy head down to the docks, which apparently is where Avalanche has been hanging out while waiting for his new travel documents, and there's a very brief and gloriously Looney Tunes fight. They confront him, he uses his powers to knock them over and throw some rocks at the lights, and then he's gone. What makes it work is that the lights come back on as Havoc lights a match that he happens to have with him while crunched under Strong Guy, I figure X-Factor in all of their various 90s pouches probably have all kinds of flares and flashlights and stuff. The fact that it's a match makes it inherently funnier.
1: Well, that and that we—not only is it a very Looney Tunes-esque fight, but it's capped by Guido making a Looney Tunes reference.
0: True, 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 true. It's—oh, it's delightful. We gotta put that panel in the visual companion.
1: Most definitely.
0: So, back at X-Factor HQ, that having gone terribly, everybody else looks at the rest of the files that Mystique got into. And apparently what she was largely doing was looking up information on the Israeli ambassador, Gabrielle Holler, And Val knows why, because Gabrielle's son is Legion, the guy that killed Mystique's wife.
1: Now, we've got a background dump Of a lot of information at this point, including describing Destiny as Mystique's, quote, close friend and confidant. Fuck the 90s. Boo! Boo! And history. I I will say this every time this comes up. It took almost 40 years for Mystique and Destiny to kiss on panel, even after their relationship had been made canonical. And that's really fucked up.
0: It totally is. And it just keeps coming up in this arc, especially like it's clear that the writers know exactly what's going on. But that comics code stamp on the front and probably lots of other politics got in the way of them just clearly stating it.
1: Yeah, it's so much more than that, and I think that's part of why it's so important to keep talking about this stuff. Because the things that kept this sub rosa for so long, and the things that have been justified by the fact that stuff like this was sub rosa for so long, are very much still cultural forces that exist in entertainment and outside of it. And yeah, we this is this is like I said, I'm going to bring this up every time, and I'm going to keep doing it.
0: As well, you should absolutely. So, this being a government matter, and this being very personal for Val Cooper after the whole Freedom Force debacle, it's going to be an X-Factor job.
1: Meanwhile in Tel Aviv, a disguised mystique thought bubble explains her plans for us. She would have killed Legion long ago, but again, she plays the long game, um, or at least acknowledges that there was a long delay before readers could bring it up in letters.
0: Yeah, her excuse is that she would have done so If it hadn't been so contrary to my plans, and I appreciate what a combination of cop-out and acknowledgement that is. Also, like, it kind of fits for Mystique, because some people would want to strike while the Fury Iron is hot, and that's her secret. Her Fury Iron is always hot, at which point I guess she turns into a big green guy and stomps away. But that's the thing, like... She holds grudges for so long, and I don't know if that's a consequence of her having lived such a long life and knowing that she's going to live a much longer life or what, but it actually kind of works for her character as much as it's bizarre that it was never addressed until this point.
1: Oh, absolutely. Mystique's loyalty is very, very much her own thing, but to what extent it is a thing, it is unshakable.
0: In that hospital in Tel Aviv, where Legion's comatose self is hanging out, Forge thinks about the fact that, you know, they're protecting Legion while he's unconscious, but if he woke up, they'd be protecting humanity from him. And, oh man, Forge's take on this whole thing, it's, it's a little cringy.
1: I don't really actually want to go over that, because it's cringy, it's incredibly ableist, and it's not really something I want to give airtime to except to say those things.
0: Fair enough, yeah. We'll just, uh, summarize by saying that
1: comics have not often handled mental illness well. I mean, to be fair, it's- it's not that dated. Like, he could be serving on the board of Autism Speaks in 2020.
0: Womp womp. Well, his jerky musing is interrupted as Gabrielle Haller, Legion's mom, comes in to look at her son, but of course, it's Mystique just trying to get in close so that she can inject him with some something or other and kill him. Uh, Curare. Is that how you pronounce that? I always said
1: curare. It's curare. Now I know. However, even though she's got the perfect opening, now Forge steps away to give the woman he thinks is Gabrielle Haller some time alone with her son, at which point she is interrupted by, of course, the real Gabrielle Haller.
0: Gabrielle and X-Factor come in just in time to delay Mystique from executing, as it were, her plans.
1: But it's never too late for a villain's speech. Innocent?
0: I'll tell you about innocent. Destiny was a frail old woman. What he did to her was horrific. I felt her final scream in my mind. She was in agony. And if you feel pain today, Holler, I'm sorry. But now you'll know my pain.
1: But she's still in a position to actually follow through and she is about to When something stops her, and it's not X-Factor, and it's not Gabrielle... That's telekinesis, Kyle! It's Legion's telekinesis. Because Legion, now, abruptly, is wide awake.
0: And speaking of Legion being awake, back in X-Men number 38, we had a tiny little aside that on its own didn't make a lot of sense, but leads directly into this. It was Legion dreaming. Dreaming a dream of crystal figurines of various X-Men characters... And of Destiny telling him that if Professor X, Legion's dad, had had a chance to fulfill his dream, maybe the world would be okay. And this is interesting, because way back in Uncanny number 254, the issue before Destiny died, Destiny herself dreamed of this perfect frozen crystal world. Everybody turned into crystal as the world finally beautifully ended in utter stillness, as it just suddenly shattered. And in 255, Legion killed Destiny. Part of what she was seeing was her own death, and at the time it seemed like maybe this was just a symbolic version of that, the crystallization was a symbolic version of what was going to happen to her, but as we'll soon see, Destiny and everything turning to crystal and Legion are all going to be very tied together.
1: We've seen a little bit of that already in the end of the Generation X Christmas special. We're going to see more of it two issues from now in X Factor and gradually across the entire X line.
0: And of course, as the comics were coming out, this all happened the same month. Everything turning to Crystal and Shattering happened in every single book simultaneously right before Age of Apocalypse hit. It was so cool. It was so cool, but, well, I'll get to more of this when we talk about AOA, but I didn't know Age of Apocalypse was temporary. I was so mad at first.
1: <laughs> so, here's a question. We've we've seen this conversation in David's head. We've seen this vision that Destiny had. Do you think what... David is seeing is real, do you think it's actually destiny, or do you think it's something that he's sort of made up to justify his killing her and what he's going to do next? Well,
0: honestly, I sort of go for a middle ground. We saw, way back when Legion was a kid... He absorbed the mind of the uh, the terrorist, well, I guess terrorist is a relative term, um, who killed his, his godfather, this guy named Jamail. Jamail died, but Jamail's psyche was sort of imported into Legion's mind, maybe the way it was before, maybe just Legion duplicating or recreating Jamail. So maybe this is something like that. Maybe as Destiny died, some aspect of her actual consciousness got pulled into Legion's head. Or maybe he's just delusional. I kind of like that it's ambiguous, honestly. Agreed. That takes us into X-Factor 109, The Waking, with, I believe, the same creative team from last time.
1: I keep on thinking of this as The Wakening for absolutely no reason.
0: Sounds kinda cooler. Sounds like The Quickening. There are gonna be Highlanders everywhere.
1: Oh no. Not again.
0: Although I guess with The Quickening, there would just be one Highlander. By which I mean one Immortal. It was just the main character who was the Highlander. Whatever, terminology, it's very complicated. Queen did the soundtrack, that's the important part. What's important here is that Mystique is still super mad.
1: Unfortunately, she's also still governed by the Comics Code.
0: You killed Irene, Legion. You killed Destiny. She was my... friend. And I've had pitifully few of them in this life. And you dared take her away from me?
1: Legion... She was my gal pal.
0: Gal pal. Mystique, however, does know when to run the fuck away, so she does, steering an ambulance into a crowd like she's knocking over a bookshelf in Silent Hill Shattered Memories, and the threat gone. David just falls asleep, leaning up against his mother. He's still very much a child, and I do appreciate that we keep getting signs of that, even amid his immense power.
1: His mother, meanwhile, is overjoyed because... Who we saw here was not one of David's other personalities, as far as she knows. It was David himself, and he recognized her and he called her mother. And that's huge. That's the first time he's done that in years.
0: And I do want to jump in here and say that as far as dissociative identity disorder, there are a lot of different takes on it. And within those takes, there's also a lot of variation on how identity works, like whether core identity is a thing, whether it's not. In the case of Legion, the character in the comic, canonically, there is one actual David Holler and all of the other alters, all of the other alternate personalities are their own distinct entities that are sort of secondary to him in terms of how much of Legion they are. So I feel like that's worth disambiguating before we dive into lots more Legion stuff.
1: Yeah. Again, we talked about this a lot with Cy Spurrier, and I think we, we might have even touched on some of the stuff tangential to it with um, Dr. Andrea Ladamendi in a later X Factor episode where we were, we were mainly talking about depictions of, of therapy in comics. But this is this is one of those weird places where you see an intersection of real world terminology used inaccurately for something that is meant to reflect both real world stuff and an extension of superpowers, so it's not going to be a comfortable or clean fit no matter what.
0: David does eventually wake up, and as he does, we hear him speaking out bits of a conversation that we saw in Uncanny X-Men number 319. We didn't talk about that conversation then, we were saving it for now, so let's talk a little bit about it. Basically, Xavier had another dream about Magneto, just like he did a few issues before in Uncanny, in which they philosophically debated, you know, the right approach to being a mutant and stuff like that. In this case, though, the thrust of the conversation was one very specific thing.
1: And that's the question of what would have happened if Magneto hadn't been around to interfere with Xavier's dream.
0: Exactly. And it's interesting seeing Magneto say no, 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 I totally shouldn't have been there, you would have been fine. And Xavier's saying, no, I needed you, I needed your opposition to refine my dream. We find out that that's not Magneto, that's not even Dream Magneto, that's Legion in Xavier's head posing as Magneto, basically trying to convince himself of what he wants to do to stop Magneto from ever having messed with Xavier.
1: And once he's done with that dream incursion, once he's convinced himself of where he's headed... Legion nopes straight out of the hospital window.
0: Everybody else, meanwhile, is still chasing Mystique, uh, who is currently hanging out with an out-of-costume avalanche who just looks like a totally normal dad guy, which I really appreciate.
1: That's something I consistently like about Avalanche. He's just a guy.
0: Yeah, except in X-Men Evolution, where he's kind of a douchebag guy. Stupid Lance. Yeah. Valerie Cooper is just... Disappointed with Mystique. She's bitter.
1: I had such high hopes for the Freedom Force project. And when it all went bad, I fought to keep you out of lockup. Everyone said you were unredeemable. I hate being wrong.
0: I like how personal this is for Val, in addition to how personal it is for Mystique, and for that matter, how personal it is for Forge.
1: It's also worth noting that Val used to be a co-worker and a very close friend of a woman named Raven Darkholm, who, unbeknownst to Val, was, was Mystique in disguise at that point. Now, you mentioned it being personal to Forge, and I kind of feel the same way about Forge as I do about Val in this case. These are two people who have put enormous emotional investment into Mystique without any kind of request from her. Like they 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 are saying, you know, this is this big personal thing for me. Why can't you consider that? And Mystique saying or Mystique isn't even really responding to that, but for her, it's not. It has nothing to do with them.
0: Yeah. And I think that's actually a quality that Val Cooper and Forge share right there. They want to feel important based on the effects they have on other people. And sometimes that can overshadow what those other people actually want.
1: Well, and this is Forge being a guy who serially quote-unquote, rescues women who are harmed or, in his view, somehow damaged, and then doesn't know what to do when they don't want to, you know, be in love with him forever.
0: Well, there's no time for self-reflection, unfortunately, because the bad guys escape thanks to Avalanche creating a tidal wave. And as the fight continues, as Mystique successfully gets away and Avalanche less less so, it's still delightful D'Zago dialogue.
1: As Strong Guy says... This is just like Free Willy!
0: Except I'm not a whale, you're not an exploitive Marine World Administrator, and I don't think Willy ever decked some guy with a tremendous left cross. Although I could be wrong. It's been a while since I've seen it.
1: I really can't speak to the accuracy of that statement. I personally have never, in fact, seen Free Willy.
0: Well, so there was an earthquake-controlling mutant, and a really, really big, beefy guy with a slightly offensive accent, and, yeah, I haven't seen it either. Anyway, Forge is the one that finally catches up with Mystique, and she blames him for Destiny's death, because back in Uncanny Number 254 and 255, she told Forge to keep Destiny safe while she did some other super stuff, and Destiny told Forge to go save Mystique. Mystique feels like Forge abandoned Destiny.
1: But they're not going to have time to fight that out because someone else wants to talk to Mystique now, and that someone else is David, is David Holler. He shows up and decides that he needs to talk to Mystique, the other people are too distracting, so he's going to pull Mystique into his own mind.
0: And he does his best to make sense to say that Destiny loves mystique that destiny wanted it to happen this way but he's really not very good at telling a coherent story like he just woke up he's been in a coma for a long time and his mental health has been pretty spotty for most of his life
1: and Mystique is buying none of it. It's pretty clear that he's not going to convince her. And meanwhile, X-Factor's still rare and for a fight, so David decides to take the most expedient option and teleport them out. Now, he's going to continue into Legion Quest. They're going to go off on a side adventure.
0: But first, we do have another little linky bit from X-Men number 39. That was the Adam X issue that we loved so much, where... David wanders through this desert, which is presumably metaphorical, as Destiny again tells him amid crystalline versions of the X-Men that he can fulfill his father's dream. They are pushing hard for what is coming up. And I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, this two-parter does adequately show the reason that Legion wakes up and does all the Legion Questy stuff. It even ties it into some pretty good past continuity, like the connection between... Legion and Mystique, and Mystique and Forge and Val Cooper. Like, this is an appropriate X-Factor story. But at the same time, it's not entirely a necessary prelude. Like, you could just have a caption box that says, and by the way, Legion woke up. So, Jay, I was wondering, what's your take? How effective is this as an individual story versus being part of Legion Quest?
1: It's awkward. I think... I think it's good and interesting as an individual story, but... That it would have been better if there were more about Mystique, if it were centered more around Mystique than David, which you can't do because it'll lead into Legion Quest. Um. So, I mean, I think it's a good story, but I think its, it's connection to the event kind of limits where it can go. It also creates this weird two-issue gap that then has to be filled between X-Factor's removal from the story and the actual shattering of the Emkron crystal, which again is is still two months out at this point. So what we get now is a weird little bit of filler.
0: And that starts with X-Factor number 110, Creatures on the Loose, with uh, almost the same creative team. This time the colorist is Matt Webb.
1: It's so nice that these have been so consistent. Now, I mentioned that this is this is a bit of filler, and I'm not saying that derisively, I'm saying that in terms of its its relative role, you know, in, in the larger continuity. This has a lot of elements that are never gonna come up again. And it doesn't really impact anything larger story-wise. It is, however, a fair lot of fun, and it stars none other than our very favorite intergalactic Fenrock Rock star, Lila Cheney, but we'll get to her in a minute. When we last saw X-Factor, near the end of X-Factor 109, Legion had just teleported them away from Tel Aviv. Now, we catch up with them on the other end of that trip. It's a canal in Madripoor.
0: It's a canal in Madripoor, but more immediately under their feet, it's the wing of a motherfucking spaceship. Because why
1: not? Before we go to that, I kind of want to touch on a specific detail that really threw me when they first arrive. Um which is that Havoc doesn't seem to know what continent Israel is in. We're in Asia? Legion sent us
0: halfway around the world? Buddy, I I got some news for you. Does he think that Israel is in Des Moines?
1: Madripoor is really far away from Israel, but they're both in Asia. The fact that Madripoor is in Asia is not what makes it far away from Israel.
0: Oh, Alex Summers, if only you'd finished that degree, maybe you would know more about these things. Well, probably not these things.
1: I mean, there's probably a joke about over-specialized doctorates in here, but I'm not going to be the one to make it, because I would never tease Alex Summers about not having completed his dissertation. (laughs) Never, ever. Under no circumstances. Inside this
0: spaceship is a rock monster! Here comes a stingray! There goes a manta ray! Every time I see the phrase rock monster, it just turns into rock lobster in my head. It's immediate.
1: We should clarify that when we say rock monster, we mean monster made of rocks, not monster who rocks.
0: I mean, he might rock. All we see him do is fight in this story. Maybe, like, in his free time, he totally shreds on the guitar.
1: Well, what little we learn about him later um, it is, is basically that he likes throwing rocks at things and hitting stuff, and that's pretty much going to be his thing. Now, he is not alone on the ship, but X-Factor is so busy fighting him that they don't notice the other passenger. That's a fugitive of some sort, who does notice them and is very, very concerned that Guido's presence means that?
0: Maybe she's already found me.
1: The rock monster keeps the rest of the team busy for long enough for the fugitive, and that he, who's going to turn out to be an alien named Jornik, to knock out and kidnap Strong Guy, to try to find out whether that mysterious she, um, is actually on his trail. Uh, Guido is is baffled, but you know tries to play along.
0: Okay, okay, I'll spill. She's in New
1: York Harbor holding the torch.
0: You can't miss her. She's got a book and a crown.
1: Now, Jorak's true form is really, really ridiculous. Um, he had he had an image inducer. It, it finally breaks. It really it is mostly irrelevant. He's never going to show up again. None of the aliens who show up in this are ever going to show up again, which is a shame because they're all pretty cool. I just love Jornick's
0: design, though. He looks like if the Lorax was your grandpa. Like, I mean, I guess the Lorax already kind of looks like your grandpa, but like grandpa-er. His mustache goes down almost to the ground. It's
1: a serious mustache. Now, if you haven't already worked it out, the she from whom Jornik is running is Lila motherfucking Chaney, who shows up shortly thereafter in time to rescue Guido and... Give us a sense of what's going on. Now, it's been a while since we've seen Lorna in the comics, so let's do a quick recap for the p- folks who have come in since we last introduced her. Lila Cheney is from Earth, but she is an interdimensional teleporter, thief, and rock star. She's fucking awesome. She used to date Cannonball. She's visually based on Joan Jett, and she can also be heard this very minute, if you are so inclined, in Thor Metal Gods, um, because it's finally on to my chapters, and she's in them.
0: I'm really excited. As we're recording this, uh, your first chapter hasn't quite come out yet, but I've been looking forward to it for a long time now.
1: Yeah, it's coming out the Thursday after we record this, which means that by the time this episode goes up, both of those chapters will be up.
0: Nice. Also, random little reference um, Jornick puts Guido in some weird alien handcuffy things, and Lila freezes them off, but specifically, she freezes them off using an ice pellet from the planet Vonnegut Nine. Ice Nine, Kurt Vonnegut, Cat's Cradle reference. Peter David's not fully, fully gone from this book. His pop culture ghost lives on.
1: Peter David, hell, I mean, that's Claremont style.
0: Yeah, that's true. Claremont was always the science fiction referencer guy.
1: Now, going back to the actual plot, what it turns out is that Jornik has stolen Lila's entire horde, mostly on a whim and to prove a point. I robbed her! I ripped off the great Lila Cheney. I did it! Me, Jornik! Now, included in that stash were an erg egg, which is the source of the rock monster that X-Factor is still fighting as, as Strong Guy and Lila and Jornick go over this stuff, and a very important music box, which is what Lila is after now. Unfortunately for Lila, it's not here. Jornik sold it to a junk dealer and That's a really, really big problem, because unlike most of the rest of Lila's stuff, the box itself wasn't actually stolen. It was entrusted temporarily to Lila, and she needs to return it right now, or an entire star system is gonna go to war. I mean, she says it
0: wasn't stolen. I don't believe her. But we'll find out more in X-Factor number 111, Explosive Performance, with the same creative team as the first two issues.
1: Now, Lila, being a sensible individual, deals with one problem at a time. First, she teleports the rock monster back to its native planet, where it can throw rocks and punch things as much as it wants to. I assume this is sort of a rock-based monster island. And then she gets back just in time for the Kalanti to show up. These are the aliens whose music box she is supposed to be returning. And they're very cool looking. They're very, very Kirby designs.
0: They really remind me of the Alien Observer from the Venture Brothers. But of course, that character was very specifically based on Kirby designs. So there you go.
1: So I actually looked up whether these guys had been around before and they had not. This, this issue, in fact, constitutes their sole appearance in Marvel canon as far as I know. X Factor decides this is really Lila's problem, not theirs. Earth is is their their field. She can deal with this. It, it they know that she's Guido's ex and their friends, but this is this is really, really just not under their purview. The Kalanti, however, decide to get Earth very, very involved. Um, they learn that Lila doesn't have the music box, and they decide to hold Madrapor hostage. They level the city block with a bomb, and then they release five more of the same bombs, which they say they're going to set off if Lila isn't back with the music box in an hour.
0: And as all of our heroes plan what they're going to do, we have a delightful exchange between Lila and her former bodyguard.
1: Alright, alright. The Kalanti have agreed to let me retrieve the Harmonium, the music box. Which you stole. Which I was keeping safe for them until that little weasel Jornik swiped it from me. But you stole it first. They were having a civil war. I didn't want it to be destroyed. So you stole it. All right, I stole it.
0: (laughs) I love them so much, and I love Lila so much specifically. She's the worst, but she's the best at being the worst.
1: You know, we talked recently about the absolutely unholy partnership of Jubilee and Boom Boom. Can you imagine Boom Boom under Lila's tutelage? Oh, God.
0: There would be more thievery and more destruction than either of them could even come close to creating on their own.
1: It would be great, though.
0: It would be great. I mean, it would be terrible for, like, the galaxy, but, uh, great for them and great for readers from a different universe, which is to say us. Hey, they're part of the galaxy. Yeah, well… Forge, Havoc, and Wolfsbane stick around to try to defuse the bombs, and I do enjoy the way they do it, which is using more ridiculous Forge technology that just shoots the bombs straight up in the sky because if they're tampered with, they'll explode. So that way they just explode, you know,
1: high up there. Well, no, it's not if they're tampered with. It's if they tilt too much. So it shoots them straight up, and then once they're high enough, um, Havoc detonates them with a plasma blast.
0: It's silly, but it's fun, silly.
1: So— Back in space, Lila, Polaris, and Strong Guy head off to get the music box. It's at a junkyard owned by a guy named Balthazar, who I'm genuinely kind of surprised has never turned up again because space junkyards are great. Space junkyards are where stories come from. Uh, Balthazar has it because Jornick threw it in to sweeten a deal when he sold Balthazar some pretty silly metal wings. And Balthazar took one look at it and was like, eh, screw this, and threw it in the junk heap out back. Polaris sifts through the metal in the junk heap, um, for the, for the box, because it's got Metal Gear, so she can find it that way. While Strong Guy holds off the Junkyard, uh, dog?
0: Oh, look, another random monster for the team to fight. This one's hungry, and it eats page count. It's seriously a completely pointless fight. Not to say that it's not enjoyable, but it really does, uh, accentuate the filler nature of these issues.
1: Well, it's fun and it sets up what happens next, which is that the fight and the general chaos distracts Polaris just as Lila gets the music box and she drops what she's holding, burying Strong Guy under an avalanche of junk, meaning he absorbs all of the energy from its impact. He's able to burn some of that off, but not close to all before they teleport back.
0: And the Kalanti take the Harmonium and head off back to space, leaving the party gift to Lila and Earth of another bomb.
1: Well, this one at least is cleverly gift-wrapped.
0: It's true. It kind of reminded me of one of the gifts in Pokemon Go that you can send people. Uh, I don't think those explode as much. been playing for about a year. Nothing's exploded yet.
1: When it becomes clear that the gift is a bomb, Guido grabs it and he absorbs the detonation, which in combination with the energy he's already absorbed, absorbed in the junkyard overstrains his system and triggers a massive heart attack.
0: And back in X-Factor number 107, when Guido and the Blob were fighting, we saw a precursor to this. We saw Guido having heart pains and collapsing after that fight, after absorbing a ton of energy, but it was sort of played for laughs then. With this, there aren't any laughs to be found. Lila's giving him CPR. It looks like he might actually be dying. And that's when the world turns into crystal. And shatters because this takes place simultaneous to the end of Legion Quest.
1: And I kind of like the narration here. This is now. It is a moment of great danger and potential tragedy. But fundamentally, it is merely a transition between what was and what will be, a fleeting instant built upon a foundation of the past. Somewhere in that past, The Foundation has been sabotaged, and two decades of history collapse, leaving the present, this now, to crystallize and shatter, because none of this ever happened.
0: The phrase none of this ever happened really made me angry as a child. I thought all of my X-Men were going away, but in retrospect, that's a hell of an ending. Like... No, it's not the ending to this specific X-Factor story, and that's kind of the point. The point of the world ending at the end of Legion Quest is that everyone's stories get interrupted, everyone's stories get overwritten. That's what sets up the stakes, the scale of Age of Apocalypse.
1: One of the things I love about Age of Apocalypse, in addition to the amazing setup of, oh yeah, everything is ending, now we just have this new universe, is that it not only gets to be an end-of-the-world story, but in the aftermath of it, It gets to be a story of what happens when you expect the world to end, when you think the world is ending, and then it turns out you have to pick up the pieces and follow through and deal with the consequences.
0: And we don't see that so much here, or in Generation X, or in books like Excalibur, because those characters were all surprised. They didn't know it was coming. But that's a big part of especially what happens to the X-Men, because those are the characters at the center of Legion Quest who watch the world ending.
1: That's not to say that there aren't going to be major status quo changes between now and when X-Factor picks up post-Age of Apocalypse. For instance, I believe this is Strong Guy and Wolfsbane's last regular appearance with this team.
0: Yeah, and Mystique, who we just saw a lot of, she's actually going to be a central part of X-Factor going forward. We're going to see Child join the team. Like, there are going to be tons of changes. Freaking Holographic Shard is going to be here. We mentioned that X-Force has a major paradigm shift in that they leave Murder World and are based out of the mansion and some other stuff happens. But honestly, I think X-Factor may be the book most transformed between the end of the stories before Age of Apocalypse and the beginning of the stories after Age of Apocalypse.
1: So how do we feel about that? Because this really marks the end of X-Factor's second iconic era. It does, yeah.
0: And I don't know, because the second era had some some wonderful, wonderful highlights. A couple of the runs were just freaking stellar. The mix of government bureaucracy and a very serious set of missions, but goofy characters who are on those mission missions and all of that superhero soap opera drama, like, it felt very human. We've, we've described X-Factor before as the, the work comedy of the X-Men, the office comedy of the X-Men, and I really, really liked that feel, and I'm going to miss it, as much as it's been floundering a bit for a while as the creative teams have kept switching.
1: Likewise, very, very much. I think it was a really strong concept. I think it was on the whole strong, and I think more importantly, an interesting and fairly daring departure in a lot of ways from what we'd seen before, at least in the X line.
0: A lot of what we see after AOA, and especially in sort of the dark years uh, after Onslaught, is a homogenization of the X-books. In the early 90s, you have X-Force being all extreme, you have the office comedy of X-Factor, you have the X-Men being more traditional. You start to see Generation X just being this wacky teen coming of age super thing. But all the books feel a lot more like each other just with different casts and I think that's a real loss.
1: Yeah, agreed. I think this was this was a rare period Really at the beginning of the 90s X-Book explosion, where you got a lot of series with really different identities and, and really different voices behind them. And the more cohesive they became, the more of that we lost.
0: What we haven't lost, uh, hopefully, I mean, I think this episode's been pretty good, is our listeners, and they've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what are some of your favorite male-female friendships in X-Men that have never crossed the line
1: into romance? Well, the obvious example from this book is Strong Guy and Wolf Spain. But a few more, and man, I, I started listing these, and there are so, so, so many, and X-Men does friendships really well, and there are a lot of good friendships in these books.
0: That said, X-Men's also been around for many, many decades, so I'm pretty sure that of our favorites that we're listing, there have probably been at least some makeouts or hookups somewhere in there that we're just forgetting about. Uh, that tends to happen.
1: Yeah, I definitely left a few off the list that you included just because I wasn't entirely sure that there hadn't been something. That said, um, as with many of the best friendships in X-Men, Storm is at the center of a lot of these too. So Storm and Gambit, Storm and Colossus, Storm and Cyclops, Storm and Nightcrawler. Although that one's iffy in terms of the never crossed the line into romance territory because they have a friendship that involves a lot of romantic elements.
0: And as far as Cyclops and Storm, I mean, they did make out once, but that was alternate universe Storm. And then there was Teen Cyclops and Bloodstorm, and they kind of had a thing going on. But again, alternate universe.
1: Okay, well, specifically then, Adult Cyclops and 616 Storm.
0: Yeah, but I also really want to highlight Storm and Gambit, the first one you mentioned. That is one of my very favorite friendships in all of X-Men.
1: Same. Um, and moving on to Storm's protege, Kitty Pride and Doug Ramsey, and also Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that bit in uh, Ellis' initial Excalibur arc where Kitty just tells Nightcrawler that he's her best friend. Like, yeah, obviously, of course he is.
1: And Kitty and Doug back in the old days when they were just sort of an unstoppable duo of ridiculous hackers before anyone even knew that Doug was a mutant.
0: Oh, Yeah. I want to call out Logan and Betsy Braddock. I'm not positive they haven't hooked up, but if they had, that's certainly not central to their dynamic. I really enjoy how they're both just these damaged, violent people trying to be good people in a bad world, but knowing that they're good at bad stuff.
1: Another set of characters that neither of us is dead certain wasn't canonically a couple and didn't actually bother to look up are, uh... Wolverine and Carol Danvers.
0: Yeah, they worked together a lot back in the day, and most of that was off-page, but the way it was alluded to really, really paints a picture of them just kicking ass and taking names.
1: Uh, Rogue and Iceman. I really, really like their friendship. We talked about that recently, and, and that's, I mean, that continues over the years, I think.
0: Yeah, Marvel. Bring back Rogue and Iceman as buds. They're awesome together mirage and sunspot one of my personal favorites their antagonistic respect was the heart of new mutants well okay one of like six hearts of new mutants
1: oh see i didn't count that one just because there had been obvious back and forth crushes at various points yeah but i don't think it ever really
0: went much farther than that i mean we saw mirage and cannonball hook up and i can only assume what cannonball and sunspot get up to off panel but i don't think mirage and sunspot were ever a thing
1: okay fair enough
0: hellion and mercury to talk about some of the kids they have this wonderful sibling dynamic even though they're both maybe not always great people i just love those new (laughs) x-men era kids they're so much fun and the dynamic between the two of those is one of the highlights
1: yeah Beast and Jean Grey, but specifically for me, Beast and Jean Grey in X-Men Season
0: 1. Yeah, I totally love them in that. I mean, with the teen X-Men brought forward to the present, there is some unrequited stuff going on uh, from Beast to Jean. But again, alternate universe. If we're talking main universe, even retellings of the main universe, they're amazing platonic friends.
1: Well, alternate universe, and it's also fair to assume that every teenager has a crush on every single one of their friends at some point.
0: As a former teenager, I can concur with this statement. Beast and Emma Frost, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're not always nice to each other, but the level of intellectual respect is it really comes through.
1: Well, and they connect on levels and over things that no one else really share. No one else on the X-Men, at least, really shares with either of them.
0: Then we get to some friendships that are kind of more family relationships, but I still do want to at least give a shout-out to Laura Kinney and Gambit, to Wolverine and Kitty, or Jubilee, or Pixie, and in the Age of Apocalypse, coming up soon, to Sabretooth and Blink. Those older-younger sibling dynamics are really well done, and I always enjoy seeing them in comics.
1: I'm gonna say finally, and this is gonna be a controversial one, because there's that one bit of continuity from an early issue that then came back up in fucking onslaught. I love adult Jean Grey and Charles Xavier's friendship.
0: I completely agree, especially in the era that we're covering right now. Like, yes, she was his student. Yes, there was a parent-child relationship at first, but they've really grown into this wonderful, warm, peer relationship, and it's lovely to see.
1: W.C. Witt asks on Tumblr, How important do you all think it is for the X line of books to have a cohesive direction in mind, versus different books having more freedom to do what they want with the world of Marvel's mutants?
0: That is a very good question, and also a very subjective one, but yeah, it totally ties into what we were talking about this episode, which is part of why we chose it. The thing is, it can be a good thing or a bad thing for a given comic to fit itself into the universe in which it exists, or the sub-universe in the case of of the X-Men, And that really varies based on the types of stories being told. I know for me, personally, with the caveat that there's no right or wrong answer here, I really appreciate when the books exist in one another's spaces. I really appreciate when they at least reference the big stuff happening in other books. Like, the X-Men have always seemed like a family, and the X-Books have always seemed like a family of books, especially because they all come out of a bunch of characters who have all of this shared history. It just makes it feel really immersive and real, and and I enjoy that. On the other side, though, when you have events going on every 10 freaking seconds like you do in the 90s, that's when it starts to become a problem. That, I know, is why Peter David kept the second run of X-Factor almost entirely out of crossovers. Because, you know, that's the reason he left in the first place in the first run, is he kept getting, getting, like, sidelined by what was going on in terms of events. So... Finding space in between that, that's what I prefer. I prefer to have books that are talking about each other, that are overlapping with each other, but that also get to have their own plot lines that don't get interrupted more than they absolutely need to.
1: I think for me, kind of the golden age of book dynamics is pre-Inferno and through Inferno. Because you've got a handful of books with very, very distinct identities and voices and teams They interact, they're in the same universe, they cross, but for the most part, they exist in discrete stories and they have the options of going off on very long tangents and tales of their own, but can still come together in these kind of amazing climaxes. And, you know, Inferno 2 also pulled in some really good miniseries as part of that and crossed into other stuff. Um, And yeah, I also, I am also, again, a fan of, of the like four issue event connected miniseries where you don't have to have everything take place derailing the books.
0: That's a good way to do it. Yeah. But that's interesting you mentioned that as far as Inferno because up until Inferno most of the characters thought the other characters were dead or evil and there there wasn't much direct interaction. Like so there were those references totally, but not much direct.
1: I mean, I think that's specific to 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 that era of continuity, but you could have had a fairly a dynamic of of fairly disconnected teams without that particularly ridiculous conceit.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. So, obviously, alternate universe books get a pass, whatever. They can do whatever they want. I would say one shots, annual stories, also, they can get a pass. They can do their own thing. But for ongoing stories, I don't know. Like, I always think of Ecstatics. Well, okay, it started out as X Force and then became Ecstatics, the X book about mutants and kind of a reality TV show. It was in the 616, it was in continuity. You'd see occasional cameos, but it just felt so disconnected from the rest of the X universe which wouldn't have made sense. Like, the X-Men would all be talking about this ridiculous reality TV show book that was going on with such a high mutant body count. And while there were occasional references, I don't know, for me, that made it feel less like a part of the Marvel Universe, less like an X-book. And I think, consequently, I was a little less invested than I might have otherwise been, as much as I do love that series.
1: Yeah, those one-way connections are always strange, and there's something you see a lot in sort of less central series. Ultimately, though, For me, it really depends on the state of the Marvel Universe, the X-Line state in the Marvel Universe, so what the X-Men are up to. For example, right now, having a lot of really disparate, unconnected X-teams doesn't make a ton of sense, um, and the relative coherence of the rest of that universe. So ideally, in an ideal line, we'd we'd get some of each.
0: Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. Let's talk to the angry Claremontian narrator.
1: You have worked so hard for this, Brenton Davis. Years of toil, of study, of foregoing the pleasures of the world and the company of your peers to pursue your singular obsession. Just to see it eliminated in a moment by the rash carelessness of Thomas A. Bishop. Maybe you should have gone out for those drinks after all. And the mic here will be turned over appropriately to Mystique. An
0: ambiguous but clearly lengthy amount of comic book time may have passed since Legion's vicious crime against my beloved destiny. But my fury is patient. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And part of why is because it keeps in the fridge almost indefinitely. Like cooking spray. Seriously, that never goes bad if you keep it refrigerated, try it. Legion is not the only vermin to have wronged me in my long life, however. And now that he's become too omnipotent to destroy, the prudent evil mutant knows to move on to paying other debts. Micah Cole, you've probably already forgotten. But back in 1981, you cut in front of me in line at the hardware store as I was trying to buy crossbow bolts for Destiny, and we almost didn't make it in time to Senator Kelly's assassination. In fact, that delay may have been why the X-Men were able to stop our perfect plot with no possible negative consequences. For that, Micah, you'll pay. And you won't even see me coming. Because I'll look like someone else, I mean. You get it. Tribble, or Joshua, or whatever alias you're using these days... Your idle gossip in mid-twentieth-century Germany reached my terrible husband, Baron Wagner, and everything went wrong. Once he knew I'd been untrue, that I'd, you know, done it with the devil, I had to run away from that amazing castle and throw my baby in a river. In a river! Soon, there will be idle gossip about you and your demise, you jerk. <laughs> Raven, out. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
0: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions, to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Next week, we'll be celebrating Valentine's Day a few days early with writer Chip Zdarsky. We might talk about some comics with him, too!